Welcome to Research Insights, an occasional podcast from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. We're talking today with Sheila Olmsted, Associate Professor of Environmental Economics at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Our topic is the economics of water. Sheila's visiting the Atlanta Fed to discuss a working paper and speak at the bank's public affairs forum in June 2009. Sheila, thanks for joining us for this podcast. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Sure. Now, water has become an increasingly important public policy issue, not just in the Southeast, but around the world. Why is this issue getting more attention in public discourse? Well, I think in the United States, it's in large part a result of the fact that lots and lots of people have moved to the cities in the South and the West in recent years. And so we see a lot of places in the United States that don't typically get a lot of rainfall or where the water supply is somewhat constrained, um, having much more sort of growing, increasing demand by both households and firms, um, various types of industry, that, you know, at one time those places could sustain that kind of demand and we're sort of reaching the point in a lot of those places where uh, that just can't be so. Um, In other parts of the world, we could talk about climate change and change availability of water resources and water supply, that may play a role as well, and certainly population growth in other parts of the world uh, matters to that extent as well. Interesting. Well, much of your research focuses on the importance of prices in water conservation policies. Can you explain why and how prices are an effective way to address water shortages? Well, we could also we could sort of take a step back for a minute uh, and think about why we don't typically manage water through prices, and it's sort of a notable contrast to other types of natural resources for which most natural resources are traded in markets. So, if you think about something like oil or you know the sort of end product, electricity, timber, those kinds of resources, those are also scarce resources but they're priced, and prices in markets provide very important information to consumers, whether they be households or firms, about the scarcity of a resource and other aspects of its value. For water resources, we tend to have a lot of intervention by public sector organizations and institutions, and you know, managing those resources could be done actually very well by the public sector, but historically, for a variety of reasons, we haven't seen prices used as one of the sort of main uh, mechanisms to manage water demand, at least not so much in the United States. Um, the reason economists think markets are a pretty good allocation mechanism for a lot of things, and so, you know, it's often the case that I'm you know, sort of having to make the case that perhaps water is not one of the areas where we could have, you know, unregulated, for example, laissez-faire, you know, free markets for water. Um, but we could certainly inject more of that information that comes from the price signal into people's consumption of this valuable resource. Instead of markets, are you seeing command and control mechanisms? Very much so. So I guess I would say the conversation over urban water pricing in particular is about where the conversation over pollution control policy was in the late 1980s when there was a sort of very raucous debate over the appropriateness of methods like cap and trade and taxes, environmental taxes, um, sort of shifting over from the more typical uh, traditional prescriptive approaches such as technology standards and uniform performance standards and so on. And at first when those ideas were introduced, they were extremely controversial, and they still are in many corners, Um, but we have sort of increasingly seen the cost savings and the impressive pollution reductions that can be achieved with those kinds of instruments. And from my perspective as a researcher and a teacher, I think that a similar conversation in the area of urban water demand is, is long overdue. Well, in addition to market forces, what are some other lessons learned for encouraging water conservation, some other techniques that are out there? Well, we see a lot of uh, water policies following along the sort of technology standard or water rationing, actually, so a little bit different from pollution control, where cities and towns often will restrict in different 
ways that households or firms can use water or restrict the amount that they can use. Um, and what we can see is that while those can be effective in many cases, we see that there are a variety of problems with them. Uh, one is sort of like the pollution control story is that they're not really a cost-effective way of reducing consumption. But there are other problems as well. So, for example, with technology standards, we see things like a rebound effect, where if you require that households install a technology that perhaps they wouldn't have chosen themselves, like a low-flow fixture, they may replace that fixture, they may alter the way that it's used, they may take longer showers if they're dissatisfied with the, the way the fixture works. So one thing we have to do with those kinds of standards is make sure that we're very careful about how we measure the effectiveness of those uh, and not just think of sort of multiplying the manufacturer specification for the water savings achievable with such a technology uh, by the number that, that households actually install. With the rationing approaches, again, you know, we can certainly, there's empirical evidence for the effectiveness of those kinds of policies. It's just that we think about the sort of costs, and that's been a focus of, of my research of late, when we think about the, the economic cost of that approach, it doesn't really compare favorably uh, with the price-based approach. And in addition, it doesn't compare favorably along the lines of monitoring and enforcement. We could certainly have a conversation about political feasibility and equity and some other important factors. Um, but in general, the policies are not going to stack up very well from an economic perspective against the price-based approach. So measurement's important. Measurement's very important. And we lack that, actually. I would say with the price-based approaches, there are literally hundreds of, of water demand studies that have been published in economics since 1960, and we have a handful of studies of the effectiveness of non-price uh, policies that have been published, at least in the academic literature. Certainly there are you know, cities that have assessed the benefits of those kinds of policies on their own uh, once they've been implemented. Okay, well, here in the southeast, it's a hot day today in June, but uh, we've had some easing of drought conditions here Yet water remains in a contentious issue. And are there any closing thoughts you have that you could share with us about communities in this region as we adjust to conservation and water shortage? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's an important point that the drought, the, the sort of most recent drought has eased somewhat here. Um, and so the sort of short one question of how to conserve water during a drought is perhaps less relevant, at least in, in the near term here. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind is that the price sends this signal to firms and households about how valuable the resource is. And if we have low water prices, the signal is that water is plentiful and cheap and should be used as much as one wants. Um, and Raising prices and, you know, having the price incorporate the actual value of the resource is going to affect these long-run decisions made by firms and households, like what kinds of appliances to adopt, what to plant in their yard, on the firm side, what production technology to, to adopt, what their output decision is going to look like. If we're looking at rural areas, you're talking about farms, uh, perhaps choosing crops and choosing irrigation technologies. And it is precisely those decisions that will determine how flexible those firms, households, and farms will be in response to the next water shortage, which may be two years, maybe five years maybe 10 years, it's hard to know, you know, how long it will be before the, the region is challenged again as it was over the past three years. But one can be sure that given population growth, increasing uh, competing demands, uh, that it will happen again. Okay, well, thanks, Sheila. Again, we've been speaking with Sheila Olmsted, Associate Professor of Environmental Economics at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. This concludes our Research Insights podcast on the economics of water. Thanks for listening, and please return for more podcasts.